Good morning to everyone here. Good to be worshiping with you already this morning. I'm just going to invite you to pray uh, with me, actually, as we begin here this morning. Father, we have sung your praises already and been given wonderful reminders of our call to, to walk by faith, our call to have our confidence in you and not in ourselves. Father, we've been reminded of the, the beauty of the gospel, Lord, that you have made us yours, made a way for us to, to know you, though we're sinners. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, we pray for your help in understanding it. I pray for your help in understanding it and, and speaking from it. And Father, ask that your Holy Spirit would, would come and teach us, train us, Lord, help us to leave changed as a result of your mighty word to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God has placed us in a world where we should come to expect the unexpected. Have you ever thought about that truth? How many of you have things going on in your lives right now, circumstances that have come your way, jobs that you're doing, family members that you have that you would not have anticipated 30 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe one year ago, perhaps last week, God has brought things your way that weren't all that expected. Sometimes those things that come are, are hard things to deal with. Sometimes they're unexpected sudden joys that God brings before us. Sometimes they're big life-altering things, and sometimes they're, they're small, relatively insignificant, or, or even fun things that God brings our way. And sometimes there's, there's mysteries that, um, things that we didn't anticipate seeing come to pass that, that hit really close to home. And one of those happened to us several months ago. This kind of falls into that uh, fun or interesting category. We were, Jen and I, going up to Chicago for a wedding I think around July, and then we were, we were also kind of having a little celebration of our anniversary while we were up there, just going to spend the day, and my parents were kind enough to watch our kids while we were up there. And they were also kind enough to, to come, and my mom brought our, our kids to our house and put them to, to bed uh, that night for us. It was going to be a little bit late, and so it's always hard to keep the kids up later. They get a little cranky, just... They're out of sorts, and you've been on a drive, and so mom was kind to, to do that. And some of you have heard this story, and, and uh, just be filling you um, in the rest of you. But we went about that evening after saying goodbye and thank you to my mom, went about that evening getting ready for bed, and, and part of our routine is always to go in and check on our three kids, and so we go about that process. We go into the boys' room. We've got a, a 10-year-old and a 2-year-old. And all's well in there, both of them sawing logs, 
They are, you know, have no idea that we've come home. All is at peace. All is well in the boys' room. So come out, you know, quietly close the door. Come into our daughter's room. Our little six-year-old blonde-haired girl, Marin. And her, her little lamp is on. She likes to fall asleep with the lamp on. So there's some decent light in there. And look in and, and she's sound asleep as well. And, and all's well in, in Marin's room, so I think. But something catches my eye. Something new is in Marin's room in the middle of the floor between me and her bed. It's this very, very realistic-looking toy snake in the middle of the floor. It has to be a toy, right? Because why would anything else be on the middle of my six-year-old girl's floor? So I I take a look at it. It's very realistic-looking, very realistic-looking toy. And so I walk a little closer to it and and you, you know how when there's something that just, you just have to, to reach out and, and nudge it because it, it's so realistic looking and, and you're just curious. What's, what's going on? Where did this thing come from? Well, as I reach out my foot to nudge the thing, it, it turns out that this toy moves on its own across the floor. It's not, it's not a toy snake. It's a real live garter snake that's in the middle of my little girl's floor. So after having a bit of a start that this is there, you know, this, ha- this problem has to be dealt with at one point or another. So what do I do is I reach down and I grab the thing as it's trying to get away. And one of the 50 million containers of some sort that's in my daughter's room, grab one of those that looks adequate, put the snake there in the container and, and put something over the top of it and take it out and set it on the back porch because I don't know what else to do with the thing at the moment. So we, we went to bed with this great mystery about what was going on and found out the next day my mom forgot to tell me that they found this snake at their place and brought it to our place and Marin didn't feel all that compelled to put a tight lid on the top of the container she had it in. Quite fitting the, names, the name for the snake is Speedy. That's only part one, though, of the story. I mean, you think that's good. Part two comes a couple weeks later, again, in the evening, and it's, again, bedtime routine for the kids. And they are, you know, brushing their teeth, and we're getting ready to, to tuck them in. And all of a sudden, an alarm of voices go off from back in the boys' room, where Speedy is being kept in a terrarium. And the alarm sounds something like this. Speedy had babies! Speedy had babies! Speedy had babies! Daddy knows that snakes lay eggs. They don't just have babies. So I go back there to see either they're pulling a trick on me or they're, you know, they're seeing something that's not snake babies. And I look in and lo and behold, there are seven. It's a perfect heavenly number, you know. There are seven baby snakes crawling around in Speedy's cage. A little research told us that actually garter snakes, some of them are live bearers of their young. And so we had seven extra snakes. (laughs) 
So Speedy had a great mystery within him, rather, her, that she did not reveal until a couple of weeks being in our house. And of course, of course, the snake's name now is Speedette. Fits much better. See, God has placed us in a world where we should come to expect the all kinds of unexpected, shouldn't we? I think we find in the Scriptures that God is a God who loves a good mystery, or at least rather knows that we love a good mystery, and sometimes holds some things back, some very big things, in fact, that He chooses not to reveal after much time has gone past. And we see an unraveling of a mystery actually in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to see as we look at this letter that it was, it's unexpected that God saves sinners like you and I in the first place. But that's not even as big as how it's unexpected. It was unexpected in earth and heaven that the Gentiles, the Gentiles would be counted as members of the same body with the Jews. The same body of Christ with the Jews. It was unexpected as well that God would reveal this mystery through a man like the Apostle Paul. What a choice. What a choice of a person to reveal this great mystery. So let's take each of those in turn to see how God reveals mysteries in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We see first again that amazingly, unexpectedly, God has saved sinners like you and I. As we look through the letter to the Ephesians, we see what I'd like to call a a series of, of gospel tellings. I think Paul tells the gospel at least three different times in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now, don't mishear me. There's, there's one gospel message that God has sent His Son to be the Savior that whoever trusts in Him by faith can be reconciled to God and have new life be saved for eternity. That's the gospel message. But what Paul does is he takes this gospel message and he looks at it from some different angles or maybe rather emphasizes some different points of that gospel. His first gospel telling we see very early in chapter 1. It's as if Paul has this diamond of the gospel. Imagine a diamond like this high in my hand. I mean the priceless gem that it would be. And Paul has this diamond of the gospel. And it's as if in chapter 1, he takes a spotlight and he shines it down into that gospel diamond. And the prisms that come out all over the room, what they do is scream and shout the glory and the wonder of God. Paul starts his letter very excited about the gospel of God. There's this message in chapter 1 where there's an emphasis on just God Himself. You hear, God saves sinners. God does. God saves sinners. As Ephesians chapter 1. Listen, for instance, to to verses 3 and 7 of chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Paul's telling the gospel, and he just wants to highlight for all he's worth the glory, the beauty, the grace of God in saving sinners. God's portrayed here as the, he's the blessed one who blesses. Did you hear that in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is the blessed one who blesses. God's one who's portrayed here as, as so heavenly, so high above us, so exalted, and yet gives grace to those on earth. Paul is stirred up as he sits down to write this letter. He doesn't, he doesn't give what is sometimes a typical uh, thanks for the, the people and their, their faith, um, their evident faith. He actually, he, he has to launch after some very brief introductions right into the glorious gospel and highlighting in that glorious gospel his wondrous God. That's how he starts as he holds up this diamond of the gospel in his first gospel telling. Chapter 2, I think he's still focused on the gospel. He's still focused on it, and he still has this diamond in his hand, but it's as if he takes the spotlight that's up top here, and he moves it over to the side of this diamond. And there's a, there's a message there portrayed when he shines on this side of the, the diamond that's, that's more of a message of dead sinners are saved by God. Dead sinners are saved by God. You hear God saves sinners in chapter 1. But now the, what's fronted is the dead sinners who are saved by him. For instance, verse 5 in chapter 2. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So chapter 1, God is the blessed one who blesses. Chapter 2, we see how man is the cursed one whom God blesses. That's his second gospel telling. But he continues to tell the gospel on into the second half of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. We see he tells this gospel a third time and again. He, has, he still has the same gospel diamond that he's holding in his hand. And he's moved it from up here. God saves sinners. Dead sinners are saved by God. And then it's as if he brings his spotlight in to one plane on that same side of this diamond. And there's a message that's related to the second one of dead sinners being saved by God. But, but this one seems to focus on the fact that the deadest of the dead have been brought near, have been saved by God. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Speaking of the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So far off, hopeless Gentiles, most likely like you and like me, are given relationship with God through Christ's blood. So you hear that. He has zoomed in from telling this gospel and how it screams the glories of God, then to reminding us that we're very dead sinners in need of a Savior, and then even more narrowly that the deadest of the dead, God has made a way for them to be in relationship with Him through His Son. Well, that brings us actually now, kind of a long introduction, huh? Kind of brings us now to our text at hand in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So I invite you to stand now, if you're able, as we read God's Word. Just to provide a touch of context, I'll skip back into chapter 2, verse 22. But I want you to notice as we read this, it almost seems like Paul has a bit of a a stutter or a change of mind between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, we'll see. It's as if he's going to carry on with one subject, but then he thinks back to some of the stuff that he said, and he thinks back to his audience, and he says, I need to flesh this out more. It's almost an interruption, an extra interruption from the Holy Spirit to Paul. You'll, you'll hear that stop, and then this uh, almost extra discourse that's found in the rest of our passage this morning. So starting in verse 22 of chapter 2. In Him, or in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, This mystery, here it is, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You may be seated. So we continue to see in this passage how God has indeed placed us in a world where we should come to expect the unexpected. So, so we saw just through a, a look at some of the introductory chapters, the first couple of chapters of Ephesians, that amazingly, unexpectedly, God has saved anyone at all. He saved sinners like you and I. But now we continue to see that it was also unexpected, both in earth and in heaven, that Gentiles, Gentiles, would be counted as members of the same body, the same body of Christ, the church, the same body with the Jews. You heard a, a few times Paul mentions the word mystery. It's one of his favorites in the book of Ephesians. He likes talking about this mystery that God has had for ages past, but now has revealed. He, he, he likes using this word time and again. And, and Paul alludes to what this mystery is earlier in the book. For instance, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you hear there from Paul, he says that God was making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul alludes to the mystery there. We get the sense that God is doing something with the church. There's a uniting that He's bringing about. He alludes to it there. But now it's as if He he pulls off any veil at all in chapter 3 and he unveils it completely. Verse 6 there again of chapter 3. He tells them this, this mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Paul preps them a little bit, alludes to it, and then gives it to them full force in verse 6 there. It might be a little bit, you think of the, the major car manufacturers in the world, and when they have a, a new model of their premier vehicle, what do they do for a while? They've got it covered up with like a, a sheet, some kind of covering, so where you can see the shape of it, there, there's kind of, they're alluding to it, there's this new model vehicle, but then when that perfect Time comes to reveal this new model Camaro. What do they do? They pull off that sheet and ooh, ah, now we can see it for all that it's worth. It's brought to light completely. So Paul does that with the Ephesians in his, his letter. And really God has done that through the ages with this mystery that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Paul says three different things about the Gentiles, all of which would have been surprising to Jewish believers before they saw this happening. He, he, he uses words that, that mark a togetherness that they have with the Jews. He says they're fellow heirs. 
They're heirs with the, the Jews. They have an inheritance that God has provided for them. They're members of, of the same body. They're, they're together with the rest of those who trust in Christ. Completely joined. They're partakers of the promise. The promise. Think back to the things we've been learning about Abraham. And yes, we saw that God was going to bless the, the nations through Abraham, we kind of take it for granted sometimes on this side of the cross and when the church has been around for 2,000 years, we take it for granted that we just understand that includes Jew and Gentiles, anybody who has faith in Jesus. But for them, this was, this was something brand new and unheard of. These people are fully integrated into the body of Christ. I mean, that would mean for the Jews that if, if one Jew was a forearm, he could be connected to a Gentile who was the elbow. And they would think, what? I mean, yes, of course, God made clear throughout the ages that there would be at least some sideline blessings that the nations would receive. We definitely hear that through the, the prophets as we read the Old Testament. But the Gentiles don't get just a sideline blessing as Abraham's family passes by them, do they? They get the Messiah Himself. They get to fully be a part of the church. This is far beyond what anyone would have expected. I was reminded earlier this week, I caught a, a little news clip of some people on Thanksgiving Day that were uh, at a, a shelter or um, some type of a, a place that reaches out to the less fortunate, and they were serving Thanksgiving lunch to the people there. So the people would come through the, a line, they'd have a hot meal uh, that day. And just, just reminded of the, the kindness, the graciousness, that glad there's, um, there's those who are, who are serving those on a, a, a big holiday like Thanksgiving. But imagine that a family goes to, to do that, and uh, they, it's, it's, all, it's all of them. It's the extended family that's gotten together for the holiday, and the, the first thing that they're going to do is, is go to this homeless shelter and serve a meal to the people that come through. And so they, they do their, their uh, uh, time of serving there, and it's a blessing to the people who, who come through, and, and they feel blessed in being able to serve in that way. And so then they, they make their way home, and, and they prepare for the evening meal. But then all of a sudden, some of these homeless people that they had met while they were serving the meal at the homeless shelter they actually come into the house just as it's time to sit down to the meal. And they come to find out that, that Grandpa had invited these people to come and join in the feast that evening. Now, the people had already received a, a blessing. They had already received some, some care from those people, but what a surprise. What a hugely unanticipated blessing to be at the table then with this family. To, to dine around the same meal. To essentially, for that evening, be a part of that family and join with them in that way. Nobody was expecting that when they were plopping down potatoes and picking up pieces of turkey and putting them on their styrofoam trays for these people. Nobody was anticipating that. And here these people are, are brought in. And they don't look 
quite like everyone else at the table. They don't smell maybe quite like everyone else at the table. They don't have quite the manners, perhaps, that everyone at the table has, but they are together at this table, fully a part of this same meal with this family. So unexpected, such an unexpected blessing. See, what God did in building the church in the way that he did, we find that he stunned everybody. See, he even kept, he kept this under wraps on earth. Even to those who were close to, to God and were his messengers, he didn't reveal this to them all the way. Listen to what he says in verse 5 again. He says, this, this mystery was, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so all of those who warned God's people and encouraged God's people and told of the day of the Lord that was coming and, and even told of the, the Messiah who would come and even blessings that would come to the other families on the earth, the other nations on the earth. Paul says, but they didn't really know this. They didn't see how much God was going to do. He basically kept it under wraps. He just threw lots of puzzle pieces out there Nobody would have known quite how to put this together. So those on earth was kept under wraps there. What about those in heaven? Those who are nearer to God. Those who have seen God's work through the ages that haven't been limited by a short life or limited by their, their need for, for rest and going through pain and the suffering that we go through. What about what about them? Well, look at verse 10. What does God say? He decides to stun them too. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, through this church, this unique church that God has made of Jew and Gentile, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that could include both those who are fallen angels, those who are wicked in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. And that could include as well the, those who are worshiping before God and, and at his bidding, angels in heaven. Could be all of them. But, but just use your imagination just for a second. Imagine prominent angels like Gabriel and Michael who had had great responsibility to do great things in the earth and bringing forward God's message or fighting on behalf of, of God's people. Imagine as they see this unravel, the things that we read in the book of Acts as God is building his church. Imagine them seeing this. And they've been watching Abraham's family all along the way. They've largely been serving Abraham's family all along the way. That's been the focus. That's where God has chosen to, to put the spotlight. That is where God has, has chosen to have his angels look and they see what he does in bringing the Gentiles not just a little blessing but into this body and they had to be like, oh my goodness, look at what God has done. Look at the manifold wisdom of our God, what He is displaying through His church. This is amazing. This is incredible. 
Kind of a side note here, but, but do you think do you think that God can keep us happy and joyful and satisfied and experiencing new things for all eternity? If he kept something like that hidden from the angels? You think God has good things in store for his people forever? Boy, I do. Look at what he, look at what he decided to do just in building his church and, and how he wanted to stun those in the heavenly realm with how great he is. I imagine it takes a lot to stun those in the heavenly realm. I imagine it takes a lot. But Paul says this was stunning to them as God showed his manifold, multi-sided wisdom. Sides of it that they have never seen before. God saves these Gentiles, bringing them right in. I wonder, you know, who is it that we sometimes think of as being too far from God's rescuing hand. You ever have that? Are there people in your life that maybe you have a lot of personal history with and they just seem far, far away from God no matter what you've said or done? Do you think the God who can stun the angels can save Cranky Uncle Gerald at Christmas this year? He can. He can. Who's too far from God's rescuing hand? So are, are, we, are we coming into this, this Christmas season praying and sharing Jesus and faith? Or do we see personal history or, or even ethnicity or age or geography or culture, or any given thing, do we see those as inhibitors? Can God overcome those things? He certainly can. He certainly can. It was quite unexpected, both in earth and heaven, that God would save the Gentiles, bringing them in to his family. But there's even more things that are mysterious in this passage. Because it, it was so unexpected that God would reveal his mystery through a man like Paul. Through a man who was once Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. Saul just didn't have a problem with Gentiles. He had a problem with Jews who followed the Jew Jesus. Because Paul, he was a Jew's Jew. He was a top-notch Pharisee. He was one who went to great lengths to see that anything that got in the way of their traditions and the things that had been handed down, that had to be destroyed. That was Saul of Tarsus, whom we now know as the Apostle Paul. Persecutor of the church. Blasphemer of Christ. He called himself a blasphemer in 1 Timothy 1. He would have been the last person we would have expected to make friends among the dirty Gentiles. Wouldn't have been Paul. Wouldn't have pinned it on him. But see, God did something unexpected in giving Paul this job. And now he looks at it and he's, 
He is so joyous over the fact that he's been given the stewardship of God's grace to, t- to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to be a part of this revealing of this mystery that, that God had been keeping quiet over all of this time. He gets to unravel it. Paul, a prisoner, joyful over the job that God has given him to do. He speaks of God's power and God's grace, and those are the game changers for Paul because God is in it. So an unexpected job for Paul, for sure. I don't know if they still do this in schools, but uh, sometime when I was in grade school, maybe um, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere in there, they, they used to give these personality-type tests. And what these personality-type tests were supposed to do is give you suggestions, yield some suggestions for the kind of career that maybe you should pursue based upon your personality test that you're given. I I think we had it more than once that uh, that we took this. And so I I remember vaguely filling out those those, uh, answers to the questions and then coming to the end, I believe more than once, and finding that I was supposed to be a forest ranger. That's what I'm supposed to be right now, folks. I'm supposed to be a forest ranger, not preaching from Ephesians chapter 3. But here God has me in vocational ministry. He's got me working most closely with our care group ministry of our church that's kind of the key community building ministry that we have in our, in our church Forest ranger is not exactly the most social job in the world, I'm guessing. I've never been one. But here God has me doing what I'm doing. Unexpected job for, for me, for my teachers maybe at that time who were reviewing that test. Perhaps God has given you responsibilities right now that you didn't anticipate. You didn't see this coming. You would not have expected this. Maybe you're a relatively health-conscious person, but you find yourself now taking care of an ill family member and an ill family member who has not done the best job caring for themselves physically over the years. And you're like, how did this come to me? How did I get this responsibility? Maybe You have a boss who has recently moved you from the department at work that you are very familiar with, very comfortable with. You're in your wheelhouse, know what's going on there. And he's moved you instead to another department that is very unfamiliar to you, that you feel ill-equipped for. But the boss says, you're the person to do this job. What do you do with that? It's come to you. It's the responsibility you've been given. Maybe you're a student here this morning who's one of those students who, you know, you're just responsible enough to when, when there's a, a group project that's assigned, who gets chosen as the leader but you to lead that project? And you're more of an independent worker type in school. But that's what's been given to you. Maybe finally you've got an old friend. You haven't talked to this friend for a long time, but they recently called you up and they said they wanted to talk about spiritual things with you. 
And you think, I've never, I've never led anyone to Christ before sharing the gospel with, with them. I've, I've never seen that come to pass. I've never done that. Why would, why would God choose me for this? Why would God have me do this? See, you're surprised. You're maybe nervous about unanticipated responsibilities or jobs that you've been given. But you know who isn't surprised or nervous about that? God isn't surprised. God isn't nervous. He's your sovereign God who ultimately is the one giving you these responsibilities, saying it's, it's good for Eric to have this new responsibility. It's good for Kyle to be doing this instead of what he was doing before. It's, it's good. It's good that Janelle has had this new difficulty placed in her lap that's going to, to take a lot of time to deal with. It's good. You're surprised. You're nervous. God isn't. He calls us to fix our gaze on him. He's the one who gave Paul grace and power to do the work. Of this gospel I was made a minister, verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. Gift of God's grace, working of his power. This is God's doing. See, God has placed us in a world where we should come to expect the unexpected. And sometimes those unexpected things will hit very close to home. See, Paul, he anticipated as his brothers and sisters are reading this, this letter that perhaps they might be a little bit discouraged over his imprisonment. Did you hear that in verse 13? He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, he says. The, he, he, it's as if he looks through his letter, sees them reading it, and he sees their downcast, uh, downcast faces as they, they read about his imprisonment and they know that it's a hard time for Paul. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. He say, you're gazing too low. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. And look at what God has done through it. Through these unexpected circumstances. A job that I never thought I would have. And yet, I will glory in Christ in my chains. My declaration of the gospel to you Gentiles is for your glory. My suffering for the gospel is worth the price of your place in Christ. And I am thrilled over that. He says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. He says, there is good news afoot. Rejoice in that. Don't gaze so low that you're discouraged over my chains. Do you feel that way about the things that God has placed in your life, the, the harder ministries perhaps, the challenging responsibilities that he's given to you? Can you, can you say, I'm, I'm not going to fix my gaze on low things, but I'm going to fix my gaze on what is high. 
and live with reckless abandon for my God, knowing that it's for his glory and his glory displayed in the good that will come to others through my ministry to them. So I rub shoulders with this pe- these people. See, God isn't bound by our low or confused expectations of what he might do. He's not bound at all. We see in a passage like this one instead that we're, we're called to pray and live boldly for and witness to Jesus in faith through our lives. And there will be many opportunities perhaps to do that in the coming weeks as we're at work parties, as we're with family that we haven't seen in a while. God's call to Paul, God's call to us is to be faithful in the tough responsibilities because really, it's all from God, right? God is the one who works his power. God is the one who gives the grace that's needed for us to do the things that he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we, we rejoice in that truth this morning that you have given us your grace. Father, you have showered your blessings upon us in bringing us the gospel of your Son so that we don't have to be separated from you forever, but instead can rejoice in you for all eternity in the place that you're preparing for us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Father, for the way that I I am confident you will strengthen me and my brothers and sisters here as we face challenges, as we come up against things that we did not anticipate having to deal with. Father, we, we trust you. We want to be good stewards of these ministries of grace that you might have for us. Find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.